Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the rural poverty campaigner, Natasha Carthew. Natasha was born and brought up in Cornwall, in the 19th century fishing and farming village of Down Derry, where the Carthew family had been resident from the very start. Natasha has spent her life noisily campaigning to give working-class writers a voice, where some might have tired of banging their heads against the closed door of the affluent middle classes in general and the London media scene in particular, Natasha has been relentless. And now, finally, her efforts are being heard. She founded the acclaimed Working Class Writers Festival in Bristol in 2021 and has written nine books. But the one that's destined to make her truly impossible to ignore is her furious new memoir, Undercurrent, Cornish memoir of poverty, nature and resilience. I always say if you you kick a door and it doesn't open, you say, oh, I didn't want to go through that door. Anyway, you go and find another door. Natasha joined me from Cornwall to talk about her lifelong refusal to stay in her lane, growing up gay in the 80s, learning to harness her uncontrollable rage in her 30s, and how it felt to return to the hometown she left at 19 to write her memoir. We also discussed her passion for wild writing, the calming power of nature, and why sometimes getting fuckety is the only way. So how's it feel to finally have made people pay attention? Um, it's funny, isn't it? When you work hard, I mean, Undercurrent's my ninth book, but to a lot of people, they think, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Your debut. I think memoir, it's just writing, isn't it? You're just in the right place at the right time with the right book. Everyone's really into memoir at the moment. I'm really pleased that people want to read it and people want to pay attention. The rural side of poverty is something that people don't think about. People just think of cities mm. and, you know, and for me it's just been, been my whole life's work is talking about rural poverty. It's in all my books, all my fiction. So, yeah, finally people are thinking about it and then looking at these communities that we live in it's not just us in Cornwall you know it's everywhere I've got people messaging me all the time from Cumbria or southeast you know the coastal towns and villages especially and just people realizing that there is poverty and it's not just poverty like city poverty it's different I'm not dissing city poverty but you know there's no access you have no transport you have no links you have no community groups you have no anything so yeah and that's that's where undercurrent comes from you've been like 
pushing and pushing and pushing for years, haven't you? But it seems like finally the publishing industry went, oh yeah, shit, class. Were you already writing the memoir at that point or did you kind of think, all right, now's my moment? Um, No, I was always writing. I suppose it comes from the odd essay you might write or the odd kind of, you know, soundbite because I'm always banging that drum, as most people know. And I think when I did Class Festival, which was in 2021, people started to think about class in a different way because they started to think about literature in a different way. And instead of just thinking about about the working class narrative as just boo-hoo, poor us. I wanted people to hear those stories that were to do with communities and the laughter and the music and, you know, that spirit that we have as people. And I think that's where publishing started to kind of pay attention because all of a sudden I had the ear of people who were pretty high up. Obviously the top five, they started to hear. So once I got their ear, they all started to think, oh, okay, class, poverty, it's a bigger story than just watching an episode of EastEnders or something, you know. And I think that's where people just started to think more. And then within those publishing groups, they started to look amongst themselves and at their workers and saying, who actually is working class? Okay, not enough. I know a lot of writers say to me, oh, it's really hard. They are publishing us. It's still not enough, but they are definitely publishing more working class writers. Because also poverty is everywhere now. It's in the news and so many people are experiencing poverty. And it doesn't mean that they have a poor background, but it means that everyone struggling so all of a sudden we all have similar stories to tell so my story of my childhood is front and center in a lot of people's lives so it's a conversation that needs to be had yeah totally and I suppose that's a good point that it's become part of the mainstream conversation instead of it being uh look at that over there you know which is what it always has been in the past that like you say like black and white picture of a kid with no shoes on climbing over a wall on the cover and and, and it's that same stock photo and and as you say it's not look over there it's look over here now everyone's like oh it's actually outside your door wherever you live it's not in those just tiny tenement streets and you know up north it's everywhere obviously it's always like stereotypes isn't it as well it's like stereotypes of working class people we are just always just put in a box and very much for many years it's been stay in that box yeah you know as you get older you're like hang on a minute and I want to fight for the people who are younger than me who still feel that they have to assimilate in some way to get somewhere and it's like no you don't need to change your accent you don't need to have you don't play that game we have got our game and people can dance to the rhythm that we are playing as opposed to us always trying to fit in with everybody else because no (laughs) it doesn't work yeah like it's interesting what you say about accents because I think you know People talk about how many more accents you hear on the TV and the radio, and that's absolutely true. But it is still very rare to hear a rural accent. You know, it's very common to hear northeast or Manchester or, you know, a kind of a, a more urban London accents. But it's very rare to hear, you know, Cornish or other southwestern accents. Yeah, that's it. And often we are portrayed as stupid, you know, the hillbilly, the kind of the country hick. And that's just... It's just boring and people just sort of slip into that way of thinking all the time and it's just yeah and, that, and that's people who make content isn't it it's people who make programs yeah. and, and write the stories and it's easy to just think oh that'll do because we're all stuck in these circle of influences we can't help it but it's so important to keep challenging ourselves you know I'm always interested in what I don't know I think as a writer as well I think that's that's really important otherwise life is boring yeah it's that curiosity isn't it and that's such an important thing as you get older But certainly when you look at, like you're saying about the people who are commissioning, whether it's books or TV programs or whatever, until very 
recently, they've all been the same. They've all looked the same. They've all commissioned their mates or their mates' girlfriends. And slowly that started to change in terms of, you know, bringing in more people of colour and more people of different sexualities. But I still feel, I feel like class is like almost like one of the last things to fall, if you like. And if you look around, you're talking about the big five publishers just now. I received an author questionnaire from one of them because they were looking at the diversity of their authors as well as their staff. And the question about education, about your parents' education, I couldn't tick any boxes and nor could you, I'm sure, because they didn't have a box for did your parents leave school without any qualifications? They just didn't have that box. That's an enormous tranche of people. When, you know, my parents were at school and your parents were at school, it was not common, but not uncommon. And it wasn't even on the form. And it's just laziness again, isn't it? It's just laziness. They never ask the question to authors, do they need paying to get to a gig or something like that? Do you want us to pay for your train or your bus? Do you need a hotel because you're traveling quite far? It's those questionnaires, isn't it, that are just, they're so kind of beige. If you're an empathetic person, you will have a tick list of all the things that that person might need. And you need to ask those questions before they need to ask. I think that's just kind of being nice. It definitely feels like things are changing a bit, but I do worry a little bit that class is just this year's diversity, you know, that it will be a trend. It comes and goes. And so I have to keep kind of punching up and that's what publishers do that's what they do when they put their names to literary prizes and things like that they'll put a bit of cash in it it'll be yay look at us that'll be great and then I don't understand why they can't have like a three-year plan or a five-year plan when it comes to funding some festivals do it really well because they will have not just that one panel like they used to do with let's say black writers where it's that one panel and they all talk about being black writers horrendous to them and then you have that one panel of people talking about class have people talking about everything and they are black and they are gay and they are working class and everybody in between I mean what's I I never understand that that's interesting for audiences you just have to look a bit further outside your circle of influence and not just flick through the Guardian and say oh those three people those three men I'll get them on stage you've got to support everyone has to support each other and make it interesting because I won't want to see four white blokes on a stage talking about anything I'll never stop writing those letters promise me you won't stop writing those letters (laughs) (laughs) so how did it feel to because I know that you moved back to Cornwall in your 20s and I'll have to talk about that in a minute but how did it feel to go back to Down Derry to write your memoir because you went back didn't you to the beach where you grew up and it was hard because my my mum still lives um, in the village nearby so I visit her I don't go to Down Derry it's completely like as people use the word triggering that word is used quite a lot but it kind of was because I hadn't been there for for a long time I, I thought I was indifferent to it but when I rocked up and stood on the beach and was looking at the ocean you know coming in and looked around and every single building every single corner of the beach and the coastal village is a hundred memories where it was quite overwhelming but I, I really think that was the best part of writing my memoir because it was a kind of a shortcut back into that mind, especially that little girl from you know the beginning of the book. It was a shortcut. I didn't have to sit at a desk. I write outside anyway. All my books are written outside. So for me, I can't just sit and think, oh, how did I feel? Immediately on that beach, it's like, this is how I feel. This is how I felt. That sound of the ocean, that roar, I still can't hear that without feeling emotional. I can't go to the beach, any coast, it's in darkness. The sound, that overpowering sound of the ocean is just, it's just 
it's almost like it, it, feelings that you you still haven't quite grasped. But that certainly was the jumping off point for Undercurrent. And I knew that I would write it from the very start of memory. So yeah, the very first memory I could have was in our flat with the coast, with the sea right there thundering outside the window. Um, yeah. So that, that little girl who basically was, you know, told you can be a cleaner or marry a farmer. I mean, it's almost an unimaginable leap, isn't it, for that little girl to get here? Yeah, it's just, yeah, I mean, my mum was incredible because she was just, you know, you you can do whatever you want. And I think that is probably why. I mean, my mum wouldn't have known how I would have got to where I wanted to be because she was doing a 100 cleaning jobs and she was running around like a headless chicken continually. But yeah, the whole community would say that because we had no money. We had no transport. School didn't engage me ever. Just I had something in me that was just it wasn't enough. I guess maybe it comes from anger because I was quite an angry child. And as I got older, I, I was angry at the fact that I wouldn't be able to do those things, you know, and I loved reading. Like I loved Daphne du Maurier and I knew that she lived in Foy along the coastal line from us. And I was determined to walk to Foy from down Derry and literally bump into her because I had a photo of her, of her standing, looking out at the same bit of coast. And I'm like, well, if she does that every day, <laughs> she walks... Yeah. I'm going to bump into her with my little pan of poetry. She's going to read my poetry and be like, oh, my God. Yeah, you're a genius. You know, and <laughs> oh, bless. It, it didn't work out. But I still had that, you know, that like <laughs> something like that has to happen. Like I just thought, well, it has to happen. I, I had too much imagination. And I always wrote from a very young age. And yeah, I just I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I knew that reading and writing was going to at some point get me up and out and away because you have to go away you have to you have to move away in order to to find people like you like-minded people and hear stories and and see art and hear different kinds of music and all of it you know you need culture in order to then make sense of the culture inside of you I mean your mum and dad were both creative weren't they I mean they just didn't get the chance to to turn that into anything my mum still is beautiful you know she just draws flowers or whatever wherever she is just little random kind of sketches my dad was just big stupid oil paintings you know this big yeah. loud aggressive yeah I mean that was his thing he thought he was just some kind of genius and maybe that was his I, I think writing the memoir has realized how young they were because they were like 18 19 mm. when my sister was born and at that time in the country it would be frustrating not to be able to do the things you wanted to do creatively you know so I suppose writing memoir you have to forgive people to a certain extent because again it's empathy you have to put yourself in people's position to say okay you know my father was very angry very violent man but he wasn't violent towards us but he was angry with himself I think that's why he just was kind of just always kind of punching things and, and shouting because he was just he was angry he was frustrated and maybe that comes back to where he was with his creativity he never got the chance to do what he wanted to do and if you don't have that in you that thing that's like okay take stock what do I have to do and it's a lot to do with not what you don't have, but what you can have. Yes, it's not fair, but by moaning about it or complaining about it, you're not going to change anything. I know a lot of people who are quite angry at rich people 
generally are rich writers or people who have had, you know, the opportunity to go to good universities and have mates who work at certain papers who then can write reviews. Of course, that happens. We all know that. That's the worst mm, bit. Yeah. And there's times when you think, Jesus, why is that book being reviewed and not mine? You know, I'm not like that anymore because I just think, well, look at the ones that have been reviewed. Look at the doors that I have knocked on or I've tried to kick open. And I always say, if you, you kick a door and it doesn't open, you say, oh, I didn't want to go through that door anyway. You go and find another door. And, I, and that's what, what I've always done. I've always just refused to take no for an answer. So I'm like, well, well, fuck you. I'm going over here and I'm going to do this. That moment when you realise that what you think is a wall is actually a door and that the people who have had that education or come from that background, you know, they've always seen that it's a door, but you've never even pushed it because you didn't know it was a door. And I think that that's for so many people from ordinary or really poor backgrounds. That's the thing, isn't it? You can imagine the industry going, well, there's a door there. You just didn't open it. It's like, yeah, but we don't see the door because we weren't trained to see the door. You're not trained to see the door. Or there's just so much shit in the way that you can't see the door. Because, you know, people be like, well, I can, I'll look at, I'll try and look for the door in a minute when I finished all these jobs I'm doing and managing you know, an elderly parent that has to live at home because you can't afford to put them in a home or your children because you can't afford to put them in, in childcare whilst you're doing a hundred different things. And then you're having to get the bus to the thing because you don't have a car or you can't do the thing online because your laptop's crap. You know, it's just a billion things. People have no idea. The people that sometimes just jump up at me at the end of an event, but what's working class to find working class? You know, and I just, I'm just like, well, we all know what what we are we all know why it's a big story it's very personal to some people but it's in our hearts I can't explain it any better than you know you when you're working class it's in your heart it's not like a badge of honor but you know and I don't have a tick list like with the festival I wasn't I didn't have a tick list to say okay are you single parent did you come live up in a council house blah 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 you know it's different for different people it's there we will always be working class because even when we have money and we live in nice houses it comes from that hardship and I think our sense of community as well is is huge and I think a lot of people don't realize how community is so important to us and I think if that's my lasting legacy it's this community that I've created with class festival and also class nature because we are not going away and we're being invited to things I'm being invited to things all the time to talk about it. We're just opening up the portal to information and discussion and honesty and clarity because that's that is so important to us yeah I mean it's about access isn't it it's about that access the inner circle if you like take for granted it's about giving that access to other people that you know like you say it might actually be a basic question but you don't know that if you don't have access to all the information um you are have obviously over the years really been fueled by I suppose anger at in part at the injustice where did that anger come from because it seems like little Natasha was well I think you describe yourself in lots of different ways but like the poor pretty polite girls and the quiet abiding girl what was it that made that quiet abiding girl snap and kick back we were always quiet and abiding because we were poor and I always know my mum wanted us to never give anyone any reason to look at us in in a bad way in a bad light so we always were very much we knew that we knew we had to kind of be better girls than other girls at our primary school probably we weren't we never kind of kicked off we were always very good because of that it was important that people knew just because we were poor we weren't trashy in the way that people assumed that we were going to be 
trashy, especially when we moved to the council house. And, and kind of none of us were in that way of people thinking council house kids are really trashy and, you know, smashing things up and running feral in the streets because we didn't. I think that when you're poor, it's just that in fairness, you know, you're, it's unfair that certain kids can go on certain trips or, you know, and then my mum would, would be able to pay, but she'd scrape every penny in order for you to go just to a trip to the zoo or something like that, you know. So just that sense of injustice. I just, I, very early on, I just thought there's things that aren't fair. I wanted, yeah, I wanted, I just wanted to do better than just what I could see I suppose because you could see how other people older kids our age who have similar backgrounds and then their parents and you just think every you know I, I it was kind of a fire in my belly because I loved writing and I think I knew from a young age that I had to be angry and fight and not take things personally as well you know from a very young age I was sending out poetry from the age of like 14, 15, 16 to magazines and then getting published in you know like the Rialto and magazines like that so from a very young age I thought okay I've got something here. I don't know what it is, but then I had to keep going. I had to keep, and then the anger comes because it's not happening happening fast enough, or you can't go to a city, which my local city would have been Plymouth. You can't get to Plymouth in order to do a poetry reading or something like that because you can't afford the bus fare. So then that's the anger. But then as I got older, I realised, okay, so just the things I can do, push for the things I can do. One of the things that really interests me is that so often you see kind of sparky, little girls or sparky young women almost like that get their light gets extinguished as they get older and it seems like with you and this is me making a massive assumption based on 250 pages of your memoir but it seems like with you it's like the reverse happened and as you got older you got sparkier and I mean angrier obviously was there an element, and do tell me to mind my own bloody business if you want, was there an element, do you think, of watching your dad try to extinguish your mum's light that made you fight harder? Yeah, I do. Yeah, anyone who wants to extinguish someone's light, put them down or just not allow them to do anything other than be the wife, look after the kids while he did what he liked, which was drinking and womanising, basically. Um, because my mum always wanted to do so much more in a way you kind of want to do it not do it for them but yeah you definitely have a have an insight into somebody who wanted to be you know a shoe designer and she was on that course that life course to be a shoe designer because she was very good at the work that she had done and she got to go to Clark's and, and do an internship and stuff and then all of a sudden she's yes she's got a young family but she never then could pick that up because he wouldn't have been supportive of that anyway yeah he was all about himself so I think seeing somebody not fulfill their life dream he even though she was young. Yeah, that probably had did. Yeah, probably did spur me on. Yeah, because yeah, my, my light, once I started to find that light and find me, then I worked on that. That, that was my kind of, that was the thing. Yeah. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the thing is, it's kind of alarming, really. I mean, the 80s is a long time ago now. I hate to I hate to think about how long ago it is. But when you were growing up at that time in the late 70s and 80s, it's easy to forget how really very different everything was. And, you know, like the girls did needlework and the boys did metalwork. And, you know, there was just an assumption of all the things you would do or wouldn't do. And I think that certainly when I talk to younger friends, you can see them a little bit like slightly disbelieving, you know, because now, you know, probably still privileged young people in their 20s and and early 30s are very much like they can be who they want to be if they're lucky, you know, whether that's that they want to be the farmer or whether it's that they're gay or non-binary or whatever it is. Those things are all options. But growing up in the 80s, you know, I think probably Benny Hill was still on the TV. Yeah, he was, wasn't he? Like, it was it. The only women you saw was, like, Paul Daniels' assistant, the women that Benny Hill chased. There weren't many, and then a lot of men who then did drag acts. Like, everything was men, though. Everything was male. So, yeah, and the school thing, like, it was just tough shit. Like, my sister doing metalwork and woodwork was the first girl in our secondary school. And that was just incredible because... You had to do the things that you were told to do and you had to do the sport you were told to do. I mean, even football now, at least girls are allowed to play football. They're getting there. It's taken a long time. It's still there. I mean, we're going to be fighting to our graves, I'd say, about that sort of thing. But yeah, for for me and, you know, just because I was a little tomboy, as people would call me back then, I was definitely different to everybody else. Because especially in a small village, and then yeah, I was the only gay in the village, you know, and nobody else knew. Well, they probably did know because of the way I was. But yeah, again, you know, it's not like you can go and join a little youth group of similar because you're in a village. Even now, rural villages, you know, when you're gay, it's still tough. It's still really tough because you don't have anyone to talk to, and you can't join a group you can't you can't meet fellow people who are like you you're still very much stuck in the olden days because that's what it is in villages and I I touch on that in the book as well because a lot of rural areas are still very much ruled by the church even though they might argue that but those routines of as we would say back along you know the back along ways is still there in, in 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 small villages so when you're gay it's like well no that's that's against the bible you know it's not changed so whilst all our cities are all a lot more vibrant and diverse in the country it isn't and if you have you know one black family that might live in your village they are known as the black family you know people are still as racist even if they think that they're not because they say hello to the one black family in the country it's still you know people think that things have moved on and they haven't so for me especially growing up in the 80s as a young 
gay girl, it just, yeah, it was, it, it was hard because I was seen as very different. I was kind of out my own. So I think that was a big, that's what made that fire get bigger inside of me. That spark became bigger because I was like, yeah, I just wanted more. I think I thought a lot of myself, I think. I'm like, I want more than this. Yeah. I don't want to be living good for you on my own or just living with, you know, the people who I grew up with. Who, no, I wanted the world. That was absolutely why. And when I looked out at the sea, the horizon, I just, I could see. I knew the horizon was where I had to head, even if it was literally just out of Cornwall and then, you know, around the UK and to London. And Like for me, yeah, there was a place out there, there was a world out there. There. And I used to look at the lighthouse flashing and I thought, yeah, that's for ships and ships come from other somewhere else than that one village and the little bit of coastline as beautiful as it is. But that's the thing. That's what I always say. You can't feed a family on a beautiful view. People are like, look, I'd look where you live, but look where you grew up. And yeah, it was. it's absolutely beautiful. But... A lot of people where I come from have drug problems or alcoholics, have committed suicide. We have a lot of homelessness. We have the worst homelessness in Cornwall in, in, you know, in the country, pretty much. It's beautiful, but it's it's not always beautiful because in the winter it rains continually and it's foggy and it's grey and it's, you know, it's a hard life living in the country, yeah. Do you feel like you had to leave to go back, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I think when you leave, you, you get a better perspective, don't you, or wherever you you come from and when I moved to London I met my partner that kind of made sense then to move back to Cornwall and to live in the country because it was a different life it would be a different life and at that point I was 25 maybe something like that. you know it's funny because I say to a lot of younger people now people that age and they say god that's when they leave home they leave home <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're lucky if their parents are lucky they leave home at like 25 26 but for me that was moving back because I'd left when I was uh, 19 so yeah I'd had a good few years away and then to move to move back was right because I had a partner and I was in love and it was you know 26 years later we're still here together so yeah was it the nature that drew you back what was it that drew you back yeah it was the nature and it's the draw of the ocean the draw of the sea I live in the middle of Cornwall um well, I live in the area called the Tamar Valley but we're far enough away from the sea that I can't hear it at night but I know it's there to visit and you know I, I hike all the time on the cliff paths and stuff it's very important to know it's there and to go to the sea and I'm very proud to be Cornish obviously my family are Cornish going back generations so for me it's it's, it's in my blood and the sea is definitely in my blood. I notice in the book you talk all of your happy places are outside the kind of you know boats and beaches and walking is that still the case? Yeah, 100%. As I say, I write everything I've ever written is outside. I just love being outside. I, I get cabin fever when I'm indoors for maybe more than two hours. I'm like, I have to go for a walk. I have to go in there. And, and, and I always carry a notepad. And I always have from a very young age. So when I was really young, I'd go down on the beach and be out in a bad storm. And the feeling how I felt about, you know, my emotions once I started to get old enough to understand what I was feeling, anger and passion and everything else. And, uh, you know looking at a full storm and the sea smashing up against the rocks and just I had a moment where I was just like that is how I'm feeling inside and writing down what I could see and how I felt and all of a sudden I'm like okay then you know started to write poetry because that was the amalgamation of, of how I felt inside and how I and what was happening outside of me and that's why nature plays such a part because yeah it's, it's everything to me it helps me make sense I think of everything in a nutshell. As you've got older how how your anger level 
levels? More, less, different? My anger level is less. Yeah, I know a lot of women's anger levels get worse as they get older. But yeah, I'm not half as bad as I was now. I mean, in my, my 30s, it was pretty, yeah, I couldn't control my anger at all. I would, you know, think something, angry, boom. Yeah, very much like my father, probably. I would just all of a sudden just you know, find myself punching a wall. And I've got a lot better. 40s were, you know, a lot better. And yeah, every year I feel like I'm just, you kind of can't be asked anymore getting angry because I've just spent so many yeah, years exactly, yeah. being angry and smashing things and breaking things and being, oh, I really like that bowl and I've smashed it. You know, it's really basically that. And I've just, as I've got older, I'm just like, my anger management is a lot better, but it's probably because I'm a lot happier as well. As you get older, I think you get a lot, a lot happier for me anyway. So the quick to anger has definitely softened. I'm just, you know, I still get angry about stuff like literally all the time because of the unfairness of things. But at the same time, I think, okay, how do I, how do I work through this as opposed to just being kind of yeah, physical? How did you get over that in that worst point in your 30s? Because that could have gone one or two ways, really, couldn't it? Yeah, it, it could have. I just got more into writing. I got better at writing. And there was a point because I was working working somewhere and I just, and I hated it. It was a job I hated, basically. And I was getting very, very kind of punchy in that job. Just not, obviously not towards anybody, but just, you know, I would just lash out. Or I, you get a bad email and you're like, boom, at the computer. And I'm just like, I have to just, what is going on? I to stop this because it's bad behavior and it's childish and it's just what's wrong with me and I spoke to my partner and she's I had an idea for fiction because I've been writing poetry my whole life and I had an idea for my first book and I said to my partner she's like right okay enough I'll give you a year off then you know she'll take the strain financially which is incredible and you just write that bloody book that's in your head and that's when it started to kind of pass I wrote Winter Damage which is my first book with Bloomsbury I'm very lucky got an agent and got got a deal really quick and yeah but that's because obviously that was I think what it was I think that's that was my anger and my frustration was my life wasn't going the way it was supposed to go and I was very lucky and that's why I understand why a lot of writers are so angry who come from a working class background because they don't have a partner who says right okay stop working and work on your book because they can't they're working every hour and so you know I completely get how hard it is when you've only got maybe you get up at five o'clock in the morning and you have an hour before you go to work or you have to get the kids up or whatever it's it, you know I I've, yeah it's very hard and I will say that was a blessing in order for me to just spend all my time on that one book because I became less angry and less frustrated because I was doing what I wanted to do and from then on I have written pretty much a book every year it's kind of a compulsion yeah well yeah it's definitely a compulsion I just love words and I love writing and that's just been from childhood. Yeah, I can't stop it. We touched on representation. And I talk a lot about representation of kind of women in midlife and menopause, blah. Um, but one of the things that really struck me while we were talking is that all of those women are middle class and white and certainly straight passing, if not cis straight passing. I mean, we're definitely seeing improvement in the way middle aged, by which I mean kind of like 45 to 65-ish women are represented in the media but there's a really long way to go still isn't there it's those stock images again as well isn't it when I tell people I'm 50 they're like no you're not and I'm like yes I am you know who do you think a 50 year old looks like a 50 year old woman they don't men don't ever have that conversation people couldn't give a shit about men's age women I don't know this why this obsession 
I have no, I don't care about my age. I've never cared about my age. It's never bothered me because it is just age, isn't it? Like we all grow at different times, at different speeds. I don't understand why people are obsessed about that. I couldn't care less. Really couldn't care less. It's, and, and I don't understand when they do show photos, there's like, like a really old woman. Like there's, a, I think there's an advert on at the minute, isn't there, for, some, for, for insurance or something. And the woman's like <laughs> ancient old woman and she's meant to be 50. And I don't mean to be rude about ancient old women, but she looks like she's about like, you know, knocking on a hundred, double her age. And it just, <laughs> and it really annoys me because I'm just like, whatever, get over it. Listen to people's words, listen to people's brains and experiences. And, you know, it's just, yeah, because it's very odd. I just ignore it because I don't really get it. You know, I mean, obviously we all go through the same physical things at some point, but I think women just, get bashed continually so whatever age you're at you're going to get bashed and men have an easy ride and that's just that is fact at what point do you think did you start to get really comfortable in your own skin i think when i left down Derry, when i left the village in cornwall and i moved to plymouth and then i had friends that were a different types of friends i had my first girlfriend because i just was me then i could just be me without people looking at me and thinking why isn't she wearing a dress she's such a pretty girl why isn't she wearing a dress <laughs> And why aren't you wearing makeup? You're so pretty. And it's like, well, why would I have to wear makeup then? Like that would never make any, it doesn't make any sense at all. People are so limited in their thinking. I think that's why I love being a writer because I'm not limited in my thinking. And I then hope that I can kind of transfer some of that to people when they read my books, because we are people and it's all about experiences and it's all about how we can learn from each other. And that's what it's all about. It's about learning and experiencing different things. That's why, you know, I, I wanted to come on and talk to you on, on your podcast because it's interesting. I don't want to just talk about the same things. I want to be able to talk about things I haven't thought about before or something that might have hit you when you read um, Undercurrent and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And you want to kind of grill me on it a little bit further. And I'm, I love that because that's the whole point of writing a book. So I knew that everything I put in that book, some of the things are hard, but I... We'll talk about them because otherwise, why did I put them in the bloody book? Do you know what I mean? You have to be prepared to talk about what you put in the book. Otherwise, don't put it in there. And that's the best advice you can give anyone writing a memoir, which at that point I was just starting to kind of get stuff down. So, yeah, good advice. And it's so important for writers to listen to other writers and hear their advice. Do you think that there's a danger maybe that your story is only valid if you get out. I mean, I know people who have written, who are writing memoir, and I really worry that they will think that if they don't get it picked up. Because I'm older, I think it's better to write a memoir when you're older, because if it wasn't picked up, I wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to think, oh, God, my life is, is, is irrelevant, or it's, I'd just be like, it's just not its time, you know. But I know the industry quite well, so I know that sometimes a book is just, it's just not its time. So you can definitely shelve your memoir or whatever you're writing and just move on and, and come back to it. Because often everyone's looking for the same thing or similar things, and it's just not your time. And certainly when you write a memoir, it can be absolutely brilliant, but nobody picks it up. It's just, it's just not its time. There's so much more at play in publishing than just a good book or a good story. And there's so many more people than just that one editor or that one agent. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people with a lot of different agendas to get that book picked up. But that's why I've always written different things. Yeah, particularly in the big ones. Yeah. 
100%. Do you think you could have written Undercurrent when you were younger? No, mentally I'm in a, in a good place, I think. Yeah, I don't think I would have. I mean, I could have written it 10 years ago. And I probably wasn't in such a good place then. But I was looking for different things in my career. I was pushing for fiction. So that was that was really what I was into. I didn't even know what memoir meant until maybe two years ago. I never even heard it, heard the term, which, you know, it just sounds posh. And it's probably a word I've always ignored. Because <laughs> I'm like memoir. Because my mum's like, your memoirs. You're writing your memoir. I'm like, no, it's not memoirs. It's memoir. Like, we're like we don't know. I'm like, I don't know. But it's just, yeah, it, just, it, it, it makes me laugh because whatever you want to call it, everybody, that's 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 fine. But yeah. that's a little slice of my life. Your story. Yeah. Right. I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask at the end. What is your emotional age? About 30. Everything I like. I'm very curious, I suppose, and interested. And I won't, don't ever want to lose that. I think the older sometimes people get, get a bit jaded and I'm not. I'm like a, yeah, I'm like a child about things. If I find out a bit of information that I don't know, I get really excited because I didn't know that. But that's maybe because I left school at 15 and I didn't really learn much at school. And now I might find out something's, you know, a scientific fact or something. And I'm like, wow, you know, mind blown. Give us a book recommendation. So it can just be something brilliant that you've read recently, or it could be something that made a big difference to you when you were a kid. One of my favourite books is a book by Dorothy Allison, which is Bastard Out of Carolina. It's about her growing up in poverty, but it's such a funny book. What advice would you give younger women? Don't give a fuck. Just don't give a fuck about all the, all the things. It's the hardest thing in the world to be yourself, but to be yourself because... You're going to do a hell of a lot of chasing and then a hell of a lot of trying to work out where you sit. And then at the end of the day, you're like, oh, I'm just me. And that's and that's the thing, you know, and you can be exactly who you want, you know, own it and say I'm a girl and be whoever version of a girl you want to be. Who's your old bird role model? I've got a friend called Sheila who left the village um, about two years ago and she's 91, 92 and yeah, she's my inspiration because she just, she did everything herself. We used to wake up on a Saturday morning and be like, oh, a bit kind of, oh, a bit hungover, whatever. She'd be out mowing the lawn, cleaning her car, walking her dog. And this was her in like her late, late 80s at that point. Incredible. And she's just given me such advice over the years to talk to her. She's like us, you know, she's just, and completely young at heart. What's your superpower? My superpower, positivity. I just see positive in things all the time. I think life is too short. And I wake up every morning and I just think of all the fun things that I'm going to be doing. And I think about my new books and I think about my beautiful, incredible partner. And yeah, I'm always positive. It's brilliant. Last one. How many fucks do you give? Don't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I think I knew the answer to that. (laughs) If I gave a fuck, I wouldn't be here now. Like, you know, I argue with people and I question people because sometimes you, you've got to put a balance to things oh if I go there with someone and get I always call it fuckity get fuckity with them that they're then going to blackball me for the rest of my career and then you go oh yeah and you take about saying yourself oh fuck that anyway because I'm doing it for other people I'm doing it for young girls you know and working class writers you've got to just stand up to people sometimes because there are a lot of bullies out there especially in our industry, who know that we are coming from the back foot. So I'm, I like to kind of jump on the front, front foot in the name of everybody else. That's brilliant. Thank you, Natasha. It's been great to talk to you. Don't worry, it's been brilliant. Cheers, Sam. <laughs> Thank you for listening. 
You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.